The purpose of this activity is to expand the reach of chest content through awareness, critique, and discussion. All articles have undergone peer review for methodological rigor and audience relevance. Any views asserted are those of the speakers and are not endorsed by chest. Listeners should be aware that speakers' opinions may vary and are advised to read the full corresponding journal articles for complete context. This content should not be used as a basis for medical advice or treatment, nor should it substitute the judgment used by clinicians in the practice of evidence-based medicine. Hello and welcome to the Chess Journal Podcast, where each month we host a discussion with the authors of important articles from the current issue of the journal, adding context and commentary to the challenges facing clinicians in the fields of pulmonary, critical care, and sleep medicine. To introduce today's topic, here's your host, Dr. Dominique Pepper. On behalf of CHEST, I'd like to welcome you to this month's CHEST podcast. My name is Dominique Pepper, and I'm the moderator of the CHEST podcast section. Thank you all for joining us today for what will be a really interesting conversation on robotic-assisted bronchoscopy for pulmonary parenchymal lesions. It's very, very fortunate to have Drs. Bart and Chala as our guests. They are the senior authors for their paper entitled Shape-Sensing Robotic-Assisted Bronchoscopy and the Diagnosis of Pulmonary Parenchymal Lesions. So we'll go ahead and get our authors to introduce themselves. Uh, Matt? Sure. My name is Matthew Bott. I'm a thoracic surgeon here at Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center. Absolute pleasure to have you on the podcast with us, Matt. And then Mo? Hello. Thank you for having us both today. My name is Mo Hichavla. I'm an interventional pulmonologist here uh, at Memorial Sloan Kettering since 2008 and now serve as the Chief of the Pulmonary Service since 2018. So we're really fortunate to discuss um, this really important paper that uh, was published in CHEST. Um, Matt, maybe you could kick us off. Uh, for the benefits of our audience who aren't familiar with this technology, what is navigation bronchoscopy, and why would a shape-sensing robotic-assisted bronchoscopy be important in the diagnosis of pulmonary parenchymal lesions? Sure. So navigational bronchoscopy is, is sort of an umbrella term for several different technologies that allow a user to um, navigate out into the periphery of the lung to do various things, uh, predominantly biopsy, uh, although there are other uh, applications as well, such as um, dye marking, um, you know, and, and a few other, uh, maybe even more um, therapeutic um, opportunities uh, in the future. The, the shape sensing technology is, is a, a little bit unique to some of the other uh, navigational platforms that are out there. Most of the other platforms uh, use electromagnetic navigation, um, which uh, we think does have some limitations in terms of interference and things. Uh, so the, the shape sensing basically can... Um, the catheter, which, which is how the, the bronchoscope is sort of guided out to the area, uh, can sense its own shape and three-dimensional space uh, at all times. So by integrating that with a, a roadmap from a navigational CT scan, it can, it can basically um, you know, show the user uh, how to get out I into the periphery to a, a particular, particular nodule that you've identified uh, and mapped uh, in advance. So, uh, you know, we think there are some potential, at least theoretical advantages, um, and the 
we'll get into the point of the study later, but I think that's sort of the basic overview. I don't know, Mo, if you had anything to add to that. Yeah, I think you hit the nail on the head. Uh, flexible bronchoscopy has been around for 50, 60 years and definitely was a great advance in its time, but quite limited in its accuracy to reach or localize uh, peripheral lung lesions. So as Matt pointed out, navigational or guided bronchoscopy is a broad category of various technologies, um, which improve conventional flexible bronchoscopy, but still remains limited uh, in terms of its diagnostic yield. So uh, robotic-assisted bronchoscopy with shape sensing definitely adds uh, a a suite of features uh, that add to that. As Matt pointed out, the shape sensing uh, technology, it embeds a fiber in the catheter. So we get real-time feedback on catheter position, catheter shape. Uh, In addition, the the platform allows for more precise catheter uh, movements and articulation, as well as catheter stability. So we feel that uh, all of these system features help overcome some of the limitations of not only conventional flexible bronchoscopy, but even prior generations of uh, guided bronchoscopy. So maybe you could just dig into that a little bit deeper. So you mentioned the you know, structural limitations of uh, EMG, electromagnetic uh, and, and, uh, navigation, um, and that obviously has implications for diagnostic yield and uh, ultimately diagnosing cancer, which is the reason most folks are undergoing uh, this technology. What are the before shape sensing came along, what were the known limitations of electromagnetic uh, navigation, and what is the hope that shape sensing would be able to address with it? Uh, one would be hardware, uh, although they both have uh, uh, a bulk of hardware associated with it. There was additional components that uh, we felt may have limited the the ability to best sync the real life patient during the procedure with their pre-procedure CAT scan, um, resulting in what we call CT to body divergence. We, we still struggle with that now. Uh, however, with some of the technologies I alluded to earlier for shape sensing, uh, we've been able to overcome a lot of that. Uh, by having CT to body divergence, um, you are virtually potentially at the target, but not truly at the target in the patient's lungs at that moment which then can translate to a misdiagnosis. So to explain CT body divergence, my understanding is that you do a CAT scan uh, maybe a week, sometimes a month prior to seeing the patient, and then the patient arrives in your endoscopy suite, and there's a difference between what was seen on the CAT scan versus what you are seeing in the patient. Uh, Could you explain that to us, uh, Mo? Sure. Uh, So... One thing very well, maybe what you just referenced, that the lesion could have changed. But that aside, um, really, it's about the difference in the lung expansion um, as sort of the core driver. So when a CAT scan is performed, that's done with a deep breath hold. So you're getting the full expansion of the lungs to the best of the patient's ability. During a bronchoscopy, a variety of different features come into play. Um, in particular, the, the sedation or anesthesia that may be implemented for the patient's comfort and safety, uh, but also the location of the target lesion. And to focus on that as one of our greatest obstacles, <clears throat> when a lesion is close to the diaphragm, there's a lot more movement. And of course, we don't have the patient interaction 
to uh, uh, sort of request the same deep breath that they would do during a CAT scan. We can mimic some of these maneuvers with our anesthesiology team, but it may not always be the same. Other features such as uh, motion related to the heart also play a role. Great. And then, Matt, do you want to add to that? Um, or are you okay with going to uh, the next part of the podcast? Yeah, no, I, I think Mo's exactly right. I, I think it just boils down to, you know, physiologic changes, uh, particularly in the lungs of patients under anesthesia versus, you know, awake patients undergoing a breath hold CT scan. And there's inevitably, you know, things like dependent atelectasis that make the virtual CT lung uh, quite different in, in some ways than the sort of um, in vivo, you know, uh, patient lung. So, uh, you know, I, I think Mo is exactly right. And I, I think it's, it's an ongoing issue. It seems like for the most part, we're able to uh, navigate those challenges, um, you know, without a tremendous amount of difficulty, but it's, but it's certainly noticeable at times and, and does complicate the procedure in some ways. Great. So let's jump into uh, the meat of your study. So, Matt, why did you perform uh, the study and what were your study objectives? So this is a, you know, a relatively new technology, and um, there really were very little uh, data to suggest, first of all, you know, the sort of safety and feasibility of the approach, but maybe more importantly at this stage, uh, accuracy. Remember, this is at least at, in the moment right now, a, a procedure that's meant for biopsy of, of presumably uh, lesions that are felt to be malignant. So we felt that, you know, documenting the accuracy of, of this technology to perform that task was was really critical as as it, you know, gets a, adopted uh, more widely. Um, so I think those were really the main objectives. One, um, you know, was, was the procedure safe? Uh, was it feasible to navigate to the lesion? Because that's one component of it, right? And some of those data, you know, were, were published in first in human studies and, and some, you know, cadaveric and, and animal studies. But this was, I think, one of the first um, sort of post-marketing studies for, for people who, you know, had commercially acquired the technology um, to see, you know, whether we were able to do the things that we hoped it would do. Uh, and then the second part, as I mentioned, was accuracy. Not only were we able to get to the lesion, but you know, were we able to biopsy it in such a way that that biopsy was informative? Uh, and, you know, whether it was informative or not, there are, um, you know, a host of criteria that we really outlined very carefully in the methods that um, I think Mo can probably uh, elaborate on a little bit later. Great. So, Mo, why don't you jump in there? Uh, what were your study methods and how did they address any limitations of previous studies? Thank you. Uh, yeah, maybe I'll take it a step back just briefly to sort of our clinical workflow. Both of our services in interventional pulmonary and thoracic surgery were, we were continued to be consulted in our usual workflow for the evaluation of these lesions. Um, depending on which proceduralists saw the patient, they would evaluate, of course, the clinical scenario and the ability to sample these uh, lesions with uh, shape-sensing robotic-assisted bronchoscopy. Um, the, the key, other than the clinical scenario of the patient, was to make sure that there's an airway and lesion relationship on the CAT scan that we felt 
would make it appropriate for robotic bronchoscopy. Uh, as it pertains to this study, we, we looked at consecutive cases, starting with our very first case. We wanted to be sure to include any potential impact from a real-world learning curve. Um, prior to getting started uh, programmatically, uh, a multidisciplinary group uh, represented by the authors of the paper, we convened several times to define you know, our research and our clinical objectives of the program. Uh, as Matt alluded to, we developed a pretty comprehensive structured database, um, which included all the usual parameters and, and, and things that we reported, patient demographics, target lesion characteristics, uh, pertinent prior lung procedures uh, as it pertains to that target lesion, radiographic features, uh, pathologic data, procedure details, and of course, the clinical outcomes uh, from subsequent care uh, related to that target lesion and of course, complications. So we captured everything prospectively. Um, in terms of addressing what we thought were known limitations in the field of guided or navigational bronchoscopy, we developed pretty strict definitions of what was considered diagnostic pathologically. Uh, in particular, this really pertains most to the non-malignant lesions as the more difficult to define sometimes. Um, of course, we had strict definitions for the malignant lesions, uh, but I just wanted to focus on, on the non-malignant. And we determined that the pathologic finding of a non-malignant diagnosis was truly diagnostic only if that lesion regressed subsequently over time on a CAT scan or remained absolutely stable on serial CAT scans over at least a 12-month period. So, no, that's really important because there have been other papers published um, using shape-sensing robotic-assisted bronchoscopy, and some have claimed that um, those previous papers have used a looser definition of diagnostic yield. So what you're saying is that you use a much stricter definition, um, more in keeping with the uh, other studies that have used such a strict uh, definition. Is that correct? That's right. That, that was absolutely our goal. We want to make sure we were strict and therefore come up with a more conservative diagnostic yield, all, all somewhat serving as a minimum, whereas if the definitions were a bit looser, the yield could have been higher. But, you know, we, we want to aim for that more strict definition. And that's relevant because um, previous studies with other technologies have reported a diagnostic yield of uh, 60 to 80 percent, um, whereas other studies using shape sensing have reported a diagnostic yield of 95 percent, and authors have said that um, uh, they're comparing uh, apples and oranges. So what you're trying to do here is compare apples with apples. So we really appreciate you using that stricter definition so we can make uh, adequate comparisons. So um, I'm going to turn to Matt. Anything else in the methods um, that you wanted to cover before we move on to the results? Uh, no, I think that was uh, pretty accurate. And I think the other thing to keep in mind is that you know these these data are generated from from a prospectively created and maintained database so you know we we expect that that adds to the accuracy of the data collection it's it's not abstracted from you know charts in retrospect where there's a lot of missing data and, and other um elements that may add some ambiguity or inaccuracy so you know, we, we think and hope between using that methodology coupled with a, a very strict uh, definition of, of accuracy or yield that, you know, we're really putting forward data that we feel that we feel very confident about. So, 
And then one last question. Um, this obviously um, occurred unplanned, of course, uh, during the COVID pandemic. How did that affect um, uh, your study? You know, I'll, I'll take that first. So, you know, I, I think we were fortunate in the sense that, um, you know, the institution really prioritized continuing patient care uh, as much as possible, you know, and our system, I think, was strained like many others. Uh, you know, bed capacity was was uh, hard to come by at times. Um, but, you know, we, we really tried to make efforts to take care of patients that needed management, oncologic management, during that period of time. And I, I think the you know, the fact that we were able to enroll as many patients as we did within that time period really speaks to that. Could could we, were there patients whose workups were probably postponed during that time period? Could we have enrolled even more patients in, you know, if the circumstances were more optimal? Probably. But, uh, you know, I, I think we still managed to do what we needed to do for, for the majority of the patients that, that needed care during that period of time. Yeah, I, Let's jump into, oh, go ahead, Demo. So sorry. Yeah, I, I'd agree with that. Uh, we, we definitely had uh, the backing of the institution to continue uh, care for such patients, whether it's diagnostic or therapeutic, because uh, as you hear in the news, things like cancer or screening for cancer and diagnostics for cancer did end up taking sort of a backseat, um, whether nationally or internationally, just because patients couldn't get access to care. Uh, we were in a fortunate position that we could continue that. Of course, our volume did dip down during those uh, peak spring months in 2020. Um, but nonetheless, uh, we were able to continue forward. Yeah, we applaud you for continuing the study, even through challenging times. Um, so, Matt, what were your key findings um, and how did you interpret them? So, uh, the, the study really evaluated um, 159 pulmonary lesions uh, that were biopsied during the course of 133 per, 131 procedures. So that means that there were uh, a subset of patients who actually had um, multiple lesions biopsied during the course of a single procedure. Uh, and we think that that is, you know, one potential advantage to this type of technology, whereas you know, maybe with other modalities like uh, percutaneous biopsy, folks might be hesitant to biopsy more than one lesion or bilateral lesions, that sort of thing. You know, we, we found during the course of this study and even our experience afterward that we're able to do that uh, fairly easily. So that's one thing I would point out. We took some time in the, in the results section to really explain the lesions because so much of you know, if, if yield is an endpoint in your study, so much of that is affected by the targets that you're going after. So we tried to paint a pretty clear picture of, of what we were biopsying. Uh, our, the median size of the lesions was 1.8 centimeters. So if you compare to some of the other studies in navigational bronchoscopy that are out there, that's, it's probably in the right range, maybe a little bit lower than, maybe a little bit smaller than what, what folks were doing um, in, other, in other studies. Um, about 60% of those lesions were upper lobe lesions, and about two-thirds of them were beyond uh, a sixth-generation airway. So, again, historically, upper lobe lesions or more peripheral lesions uh, may be ones that are a little bit more technically challenging to navigate to and to biopsy. So, again, we, we felt like 
through the course of this study, it's not that we were really, um, you know, cherry picking easy cases. These were many of these lesions were actually quite difficult. Um, I mentioned earlier, one of the endpoints was the success of navigation. Were we able to, to get to the lesion? That's sort of step one, right? And we found that that was feasible in about 99% of cases. Um, so, you know, I, I think that's, that sort of speaks to the um, navigational component of the, of the technology. And we found in, in our hands that that worked quite well. In regard to diagnostic yield, um, you know, using that definition that, that Mo and I had outlined uh, earlier, um, patients with, again, just highlighting the fact that these were patients with 12-month follow-up uh, predominantly, uh, the diagnostic yield was 81.7%. Um, when you looked at, when you broke that down, there's a histogram in the paper of yield by lesion size, which I think is really interesting. When we looked at lesions that were more than two centimeters, our yield was, I think, 90%, 90 or 95%. It was extraordinarily good. When we came down below two centimeters of that one and a half, it was about 70% or so. And then we, I think when we came down for sub-centimeter lesions, we were around 60%. So it seemed from that analysis that lesion size you know, was in, in, an important determinant of yield, and that had been shown by others. Um, so in our, we performed a univariate analysis to see what, um, what features, both sort of patient-related factors and lesion-related factors, procedural factors, uh, were associated with yield. Um, and lesion size was one, and central location uh, was another. If they were obviously easier to navigate to, maybe that made the procedure a little bit uh, more straightforward. When we looked at them in a multivariable uh, model, um, we still saw that size was really the main driver of yield. And we used that 1.8 centimeter cutoff in the, those analyses because that was the median size of the lesion. So it just made, um, you know, it made sense to use that as our, as our cutoff for these uh, analyses as well. Um, when we think about sensitivity and specificity uh, for cancer, we, we essentially saw a sensitivity right around 80% and a specificity, uh, I'm sorry, a sensitivity and then a negative predictive value. So if, if the procedure was negative, what percentage of lesions were indeed uh, benign according to our criteria was about 72%. I spoke earlier about safety uh, as well, which obviously in a study like this is, is very important. The overall complication rate was very low, was around 3%. Uh, our pneumothorax rate was around 1.5%, which we think compares quite favorably to other uh, potential biopsy approaches. Um, so, you know, I think there were a lot of data here that suggest really that this is an effective option uh, for uh, biopsying lung lesions uh, and appears to be, you know, fairly, uh, very safe and, and well tolerated uh, by patients. So I think those were really the critical uh, findings from the study. And how do you make sense of that? Um, reading between the lines, I mean, between the lines, as stated in your paper, uh, lesion size matters. So um, if we look at all these different studies that are um, reporting diagnostic yield, it looks like we need to take into very strong consideration the average size of the lesions that people are biopsying when they're talking about the fact that the yield is so high. Would, would that be uh, your interpretation? 
Yeah, I think that's that's a very important point, right? That the devil is always in the details uh, in some ways, and and you know these studies in general, the, these various studies that are that are published are hard to compare because you, you really don't know uh, exactly what types of targets people are are going after. Again, I think that's why we spent some time really trying to outline that um, outline that here. And and the other thing I think that's important to keep in mind is that. You know, this is there was no learning curve prior to this study, right? The study really incorporates our learning curve. So, I would suspect uh, if we had to look at it now, that we're probably doing things that are even more challenging, just because you know, based on this data, we became quite comfortable with the fact that this was uh, was an effective modality, um, and now maybe we we push the envelope a little bit and and do things that may have been may have, we may have been concerned about doing before so if anything i would imagine that the the difficulty of our lesions over time has has increased yeah i'd like to add oh, to that what last was, point right i'm so sorry go ahead no no go ahead i think that was my question to you um uh, it seems as though the learning curve uh, in the first 5 or 10 cases but you're going for really small lesions here. Um, how did? What is your experience of using the technology, and what uh, uh, interpretation did you have of the findings? Yeah, the uh, the key point I was going to uh, highlight on that is one of the last things Matt said about tougher and tougher lesions. Definitely, when we first started. Uh, I don't believe we were sort of cherry picking the easy ones. We started with pretty small lesions uh, right off the bat. But most importantly, we we all had a sense that these were cases that we would not have even considered performing with previous iterations of guided bronchoscopy. We would have straight away referred for percutaneous biopsy or even a surgical wedge resection, depending on the case. Uh, Now we're on the complete other end of the spectrum where um, we are you know, coming into it with the the half glass full, thinking that we can get to most of these lesions and we need to sort of disprove to ourselves when we're screening the CAT scan that robotic assisted bronchoscopy is not the right pathway. Um, And as Matt put it, you know, the the lesions that we're doing are probably getting tougher um, and possibly possibly smaller. and that all is anchored on the fact that not only did our data support the the outcomes from a diagnostic yield standpoint, but just our comfort and experience with the technology has definitely accelerated. In particular, the you know the smaller lesions, although we're not reaching the ninety plus percent on the much smaller lesions, the yield that we're getting in that 60 to 70% range, depending on which size range we're talking about, is infinitely better than previous iterations of guided bronchoscopy. And, and I just want to talk about... Andy, can I just go ahead, Matt? One other thing that I forgot to mention earlier. So in terms of the procedural details here, um, I think, you know, during the course of our experience, we uh, acquired a mobile cone beam uh, CT unit and that was used, I think, in it's in the paper, I think in about 30, 20 to 30% of the cases in this series. That means the vast majority were really performed just with the uh, robotic bronchoscopy platform with radial EBUS. And, you know, I, I think as my experience has grown, I think that that 
uh, adding that additional uh, imaging modality really does um, add value and accuracy to the procedure. We, we haven't, that data is not really encompassed in this manuscript, nor was it really meant to be. But, but I, I think for, for listeners, you know, I would certainly think about um, incorporating that uh, because I, I do think that there's, there's definitely value there. And, and I would postulate that if we repeated this study uh, you know, with our with our current approach, it it would it may be even it may be even better. But so just something to keep in mind. So I want to ask you about the mobile cone beam CT, simply because some of our listeners may not be familiar with that technology. How is that adding to the shape sensing robotic assisted bronchoscopy, Matt? Sure. So you know, we we talked earlier about the situations of, of diver, CT to body divergence, right? So if you have significant divergence and even, even if you followed the navigation path appropriately, you know, you're in the right place. If you, if you put the radial ebus in and you don't see the lesion, which happens uh, at times, then, then there's really very few options, I think, for, um, addressing that uh, in the absence of additional imaging. So if the, if the lesion is not visible, let's say on 2D fluoroscopy. So with the, with the mobile cone beam, you can essentially perform an on-table CT scan um, with, you know, your standard axial, sagittal, and coronal sections. And that will um, oftentimes give you um, a better representation of where the tip of your catheter is in relation to the lesion. And then, you know, based on, uh, again, newer updates of the software, you can adjust the positioning of your catheter to fall more in line with um, where the lesion is located intraprocedurally based on that uh, intraoperative or intraprocedural uh, CT scan. So I think it is a, a sort of promising way for um, accounting for this these divergence issues, which I think are really, um, you know, to some degree inevitable, at least in some cases, um, you know, when using this technology. And Matt, when you all did that, did you all have to move your um, uh, platform from the bronchoscopy suite to the radiology department? Uh, how was that feasible? No, the, the unit is completely mobile. So, it, you know, it sits, it's basically stored in the hallway of the um, ambulatory operating room where we perform these procedures. And, you know, for the case, we, we roll it in and it has a, a 2D function as well as a, a, so a standard fluoroscopy function as well as the, the 3D imaging option that we're, we're talking about here. So, um, it's it's quite convenient, um, and and again, I I do think uh, really um, adds a level of of uh, accuracy to the to the procedure that may um, to makes sort of an already good procedure. I think e even better. Yeah, that's right. I, I completely agree uh, that it adds significant extra value and add to to uh, go beyond the CT to body divergence issue. Just the the fine tuning and precision of your sampling can be adjusted uh, with each of your biopsy samples or needle passes. You, you may have a successful navigation, a positive signal on the radial EBIS, but just not getting um, the, the answer you want from, say, your rapid on-site cytology evaluation. Uh, so with, with the 3D imaging or mobile cone beam CT, you can see exactly where 
your needle is, whether adjacent or on the edge of the lesion, and make those fine articulations uh, with the robot system to get more centered into the lesion and, and therefore hopefully get a better diagnostic yield. Great. And then, Mo, maybe you could talk a bit about the workflow. What time period do you envision um, patients will get their CAT scan. Sometimes there'll be a delay for them to see a pulmonologist, a delay to get a CT-guided needle biopsy or bronchoscopy, a delay to see the surgeon. With this new technology that you're describing, um, how will we shorten uh, time intervals from initial CT to uh, diagnose, diagnosis and cure? That, that is a fantastic question and probably the key uh, to moving forward, just carrying this technology into the realm of cancer care, not just focusing on diagnostic yield. Um, I, I guess we're a bit of an outlier as a high volume tertiary cancer care center, meaning that as it pertains to your question, a couple of things. One, uh, there's a lot of CAT scans happening. Uh, so delays to get a CAT scan is um, basically unheard of. And I would say the same translates to a referral to see uh, one of us in interventional pulmonary or thoracic surgery. The turnaround time or the wait times um, are, are pretty small. Um, uh, in terms of referrals to um, or, or the, the next step to a procedure, um, there are always going to be holdups and delays just simply because the schedule is full. Um, but generally speaking, the, the wait times are not being dragged out in the range of multiple weeks or anything like that. So <clears throat> the, the other added layer is not just a timeline from CAT scan to referral to diagnosis and ultimately treatment, whether that's surgery, radiation, multimodality therapy, including chemotherapy, uh, the key is what we can do in that single procedure. Historically, if you needed to biopsy a peripheral lung lesion, that was very often done or most often done percutaneously, and then a separate procedure for the mediastinal lymph node staging uh, with the standard of care of uh, linear endobronchial ultrasound. Now we can combine that all in, into one. So we can combine the robotic-assisted bronchoscopy with the linear EBIS and offer a, a single low-risk procedure, single anesthesia event for high-yield diagnostics of both the pulmonary lesion and the lymph nodes for staging. Uh, moreover, and Matt alluded to this earlier, if there are multiple lung nodules or bilateral lung nodules, that also can be done in a single procedure, which may either add to staging if it's malignant in these multiple nodules, or it may prove that one is malignant and one is not malignant, allowing for uh, moving forward maybe uh, curative intent for a lower stage uh, lung cancer. And then, Matt, there's also the potential that you could theoretically do this procedure with everything that Mo mentioned in the morning, um, have confirmation of lung cancer potentially curable, and either have the curative surgery the same afternoon or the next day. Would that be feasible? Yeah, th thanks for bringing that up. The, those types of treatment pathways are, are certainly, at least theoretically, feasible. You know, we've done uh, several cases now where we've um, done dye marking and excised the lesions. So these would be sort of difficult to palpate uh, lesions toward the periphery that are amenable to wedge resection. So we basically navigate out, mark them either with methylene blue or ICG or combination of both uh, and, and excise them. I think when you're talking about potentially doing an anatomic resection, for instance, a lobectomy, 
then things become a little bit more complicated. And a lot of that, I think, is related to the confidence level of your pathologists. And, you know, at this institution, at least we strongly prefer to have a a confirmed tissue diagnosis before proceeding with an anatomic resection, particularly lobectomy or or pneumonectomy or something like that. Um, So we've, we've, sort of been, I guess, gradually progressing toward more of a combined procedure. But I think, again, it, it's, it's a little uh, challenging because if there is an instance, let's say, where, you know, the intraop cytology is suspicious, the patient has their resection, and then lo and behold, on the final pathology, it was, it was in fact, you know, granuloma or some sort of inflammatory lesion. You know, I, I think there are uh, potential issues there. So, Again, I, I think a lot of it boils down to the comfort level of, of your pathologist making the call and, and how comfortable they are with you moving forward with a, you know, a significant resection based on that information. But um, you know, I know that there are, are people out there doing things like that, and I think it, in theory it's, it's certainly feasible. Um, you know, I would just add those, uh, add those potential caveats. I'd like to add two points to that. I think uh, everything Matt said is correct. So one, just sort of quickly talking about future directions, uh, whether it's surgery or otherwise, I think the key uh, idea here is merging the diagnostic staging and therapeutics in a single anesthesia event or single day. Uh, But in terms of future advances of robotic bronchoscopy, uh, bronchoscopic ablation is um, definitely uh, the next step here as it pertains to not just getting access to and sampling the lesion, but then treating it, again, whether it's surgery or ablation. Uh, But for both of those, uh, coming to my second point, both of those, the real key is a good plan beforehand, much like anything we do in cancer care. It's a multidisciplinary approach. And moreover, the patient is involved uh, sort of every step of the way in terms of the forks in the road where they can't participate during the event itself because of the anesthesia. So having a well laid out plan and discussion with patient and family uh, is, is a real key to the success of these sorts of decisions intraoperatively. Great. And then I want to go back to uh, figure two, your bar, your bar graph, which uh, details that um, if the lesion is greater than two centimeters, your yield is essentially greater than 90%, 93%, 100% for the, the larger size lesions. For those lesions less than two centimeters, you mentioned the utility of uh, cone beam CT. What other modalities could be used uh, to increase your diagnostic yield that you're either using now or that uh, is in the pipeline um, that our listeners should be aware of? Uh, yeah, that, that's a great question. So, yeah, the pipeline might be the better answer to that. Uh, but before we come to that, it, it's, it's about fine-tuning the skills. Now, we, we're very comfortable as a group as well as individual proceduralists with the technology um, robotic bronchoscopy, that is, and also increasingly comfortable with interpreting the mobile cone beam CT images. The key is tying those two together. Um, so as humans, we're, we're very limited in our skill set to interpret 3D spatial uh, data looking at 2D data. Uh, so thankfully, we've got machines in the room uh, helping us. So synchronizing that data between the cone beam CT and the robotic assistant, uh, assisted platform is, is part of that next wave. Um, uh, 
whether it's about distance, angulation, articulation, or so on and so forth, that, that information translating from one system to the other um, is sort of the next obstacle to, to take. And then in terms of um, cost, um, because you've uh, alluded to um, the safety of the procedure, um, the, the, a minimal pneumothorax risk, um, one of the other uh, uh, limitations that centers will have is cost. How much does this cost to acquire uh, a shape-sensing robotic-assisted uh, bronchoscope? And if you add on uh, a mobile comb beam CT, um, what layout would an institution have to put out uh, to get to the results that you all are getting now? So that, that's a great question uh, in terms of cost and what infrastructure is really required to pull this off. So uh, from a list price standpoint between robotics and 3D imaging or, or comb beam CT, uh, it's definitely going to be in your mid to high six figures. Um, the, the other aspects of cost are what other tools are already plugged into your platform. Uh, radial endobronchial ultrasound is a key part of success in this procedure. Uh, and if we're talking about single procedures, we're also lymph node staging, of course, linear EBIS. Uh, most of these technologies are already in play in most bronchoscopy platforms, but uh, cannot be, um, uh, you know, it, it cannot be forgotten when planning your program. The other layers are not necessarily equipments, but uh, uh, personnel and resources. So from a personnel standpoint, the right radiology uh, technology, uh, a technologist to support your cone beam CT, if that's the workflow in your institution, your packs to archive images and the data stories that goes along with that. Uh, from a cytology and pathology standpoint, uh, we here favor rapid on-site evaluation or ROSE, as do probably most institutions. That is personnel and cost. Um, and that that is now a longer procedure compared to just, say, the lymph node staging alone. So that invariably will add to cost and personnel to cover more procedures. Um, the, uh, the other aspects of what your pathology team can handle and what they're comfortable with and what training do they require as you bring them more smaller biopsies as compared to, say, a surgical biopsy. Many institutions are not um, so comfortable with that from a pathology standpoint. So having a good thoracic pathologist and cytopathologist in a way, are a cost uh, to the institution as well to make the program successful. In terms of space um, and, and that sort of infrastructure, um, it, it requires the right size room. Uh, this cannot be a small basic diagnostic bronchoscopy room. Uh, it's sort of a hybrid room or an advanced room. It may, not to be, it may not need to be a full operating room unless you're planning the concurrent resections and things like that. Um, but it does require a good footprint to accommodate the equipment and make sure there's safety from the standpoint of personnel being able to walk in and around for, um, uh, for emergencies and egress and that kind of thing. Yeah, thanks for highlighting those really important uh, costs. And so you're looking at about six to seven hundred thousand uh, dollars just for the machine and and all these other costs that that you alluded to. Um, 
Matt and Mode, there are no perfect studies, and we definitely want our uh, uh, listeners um, and chess community to be aware of any limitations in the studies that are performed so that they can inform their practice. Matt, maybe you could kick us off. Uh, what do you want our listeners to be aware of in terms of limitations of the study, stuff that you could not address, that future studies should address, or that uh, our listeners should be aware of? Yeah, I think we've uh, touched on a couple of them. You know, one is um, in terms of future studies, you know, cost efficacy, I think, is a is a concern for uh, everyone in, in the current uh, healthcare environment, both in this country and in other countries. Um, you know, so maybe uh, additional uh, insights there, whether this has some cost saving advantages relative to other bronchoscopy platforms or not might be something that is worth considering. Uh, in regard to limitations of, of our particular study and the results, the only thing I would mention is, you know, again, we tried to use a pretty strict definition of, of yield uh, with that one-year uh, cutoff. However, you know, you it, it could be conceivable that there are lesions that are relatively stable uh, at a year that are maybe indolent cancers. So, you know, there may be some relatively small proportion um, of those nodules that even though radiographic uh, stability is demonstrated, you know, doesn't completely exclude the possibility that there's cancer there. It's not like we're resecting every one of these lesions, you know, to serve as some sort of gold standard. So um, I would just point that out. But again, I think that's sort of inherent in any study like this. And, and I think we'll get even an even better sense, you know, as we look at even more long-term uh, outcomes. Let's say we revisit these results in another year. You know, do they look the same or, or is there a subset of lesions that do progress over that period of time? So just something to keep in mind. No? Yeah, to add to that, um, uh, we touched upon a little bit that, of course, this is a single center study in particular at a cancer center. So there's a potential that there's some selection bias here in in the sense that we may have more malignant lesions than, than another uh, program. Uh, and we do know that the sensitivity for malignancy versus non-malignant disease is, is higher as it pertains to bronchoscopy. So the, there's a potential selection bias there. Uh, the, the other aspect is, you know, this was um, our first stab at it, meaning that it was at this point a, a fraction of our of our cohort that have undergone robotic bronchoscopy. Uh, in other words, kind of limited by the number of participants and target lesions uh, in the report. Um, so maybe we could have reached more statistical significance on certain aspects um, pertaining to diagnostic yield predictors, in particular, the bronchus sign, which is classically thought to be related to a higher diagnostic yield. We, weren't that, we were not able to bear that out. Uh, but potentially that was just a limitation of the the numbers. And then in terms of future institutions using this technology, um, you know, 10, 20 years ago, EVIS came along and then electromagnetic navigation, and they were done primarily in large institutions. And we've seen with time that they've gone to non-academic centers and smaller centers and been taken up pretty well with uh, good results. How do you see uh, shape-sensing robotic-assisted bronchoscopy uh, going out into the community hospitals? Matt, yeah. you want to take this first? Yeah, I mean, I think that this is definitely um, a technology that would become more popular with time. You know, I think as 
the technology improves even further and, you know, the data, um, you know, are, are increasingly published that, that demonstrate that, you know, I, I think from a patient satisfaction point of view, that's another thing I think that's worth considering, right? I think, um, for patients who have a complication from their biopsy, um, you know, if you have a pneumothorax and, and you have a, a chest tube placed and you're in the hospital for, you know, some period of days, that gets to be a very frustrating experience for patients. So if that can be avoided, um, you know, there there's certainly appeal there uh, for patients. So does that, you know, does that sort of become some sort of marketing uh, strategy on on behalf of an institution? You know, we can, we have a technology that provides very accurate biopsies and it can do it uh, quite safely. So I, I think to the short answer to your question is, yes, I imagine that this will expand beyond academic centers. Um, you know, I think there are potential cost limitations in other healthcare environments that may be an issue, but at least in the U.S., uh, you know, I, I would imagine that this becomes more and more popular with time. Yeah, well? I agree with that. And uh, I'll just take your cue on the historical reference of EBIS and and that electromagnetic navigation. So for sure, EBIS uh, spread sooner than, uh, or let me say more effectively than navigation did, uh, was definitely the key to getting patients diagnosed and staged with a minimally invasive procedure that was fairly easy to learn. Uh, and there's a whole conversation that could be had around that, not pertinent to this talk. Um, and then with electromagnetic navigation, I, I, I I was able to live through some of the drama behind that because um, there was a time now, 14, 15 years ago, where the one of the companies pulled their technology voluntarily because of complaints from users that it, quote, caused complications. And I, you know, we as the users at higher volumes know that was not true. Uh, and the reason why I bring that up is not to talk about a technology, but talk about how it's spread. And in that particular case, it was anyone who could buy it would buy it and then use it, but it did not come with the proper training. And that is the key here. Um, it's not about, it's not only about your own experience as a bronchoscopist, but it is about the proper training, whether it's from a, a colleague, a workshop, a support from the, the uh, vendor in the industry, um, the key is proper training because there's so many potential pitfalls in any technology, including this, uh, that you need to be aware of before going ahead. So cost, yes, is an obstacle, but the proper dissemination of the technology, the education before use uh, are vital uh, to, to the success and not only of your program, but the safety for patients. And safety may not only mean true complications, but putting them through a non-diagnostic procedure, which may be only non-diagnostic because of the failure of the operator rather than a failure of the technology. That, that I see as a, quote, complication in its own right. That's a really important point that you make, Mo, and maybe you could uh, just dive into that a little bit deeper, because during the podcast, you mentioned, uh, or uh, one of you mentioned that the learning curve was was pretty easy. I mean, it, it, despite using this technology for the first time, your diagnostic yield was comparatively high, but it does require um, a fair amount of um, preparation beforehand. So if folks were to adopt this technology, what would they expect in terms of training prior uh, to using the technology? Mo? 
Right. Yes. The, the learning curve piece, uh, absolutely critical here. Uh, so in our study, we included our initial cases, as we mentioned. And as Matt uh, pointed out earlier, we'll have to parse that out maybe at some point in the future, you know, sort of a first 50 versus a second 50 kind of comparison. Uh, we did not do that here. In, in terms of training, but also preparation. Um, so we being one of the earliest adopters from a commercial standpoint, um, four of us uh, individually went out to the, the company headquarters for sort of intensive training uh, for, for a day or two, and that was invaluable. But it was also on the backbone of experience in prior iterations of navigation and guided bronchoscopy. So the, the general concepts and the general sort of pros and cons all will you know still apply, of course, unique to each technology. So we had a good sense of questions to ask and how to counter certain pitfalls and being aware of the skill sets that we wanted to develop. And of course, there's always the, the, the things that you don't know you don't know, uh, which uh, we learn over time or directly from the initial training. As time has progressed and there's more sites performing these procedures with high volume experience, the, the training design has probably has probably morphed over time um, for, for our own institution as more users. And we have nine total um, robotic bronchoscopists here. Uh, some of the later users were trained um, uh, by, the, by colleagues here on site as well. So that training morphs. And the last point before we get uh, Matt's insight on this, the last point I wanted to make pertains to all forms of navigation or guided bronchoscopy, and that is a planning specific to that case. Uh, this is something uh, uh, I sort of feel like the old guy who says, uh, I walked in the snow for a mile when I was going to school, uh, but this is something going back to previous iterations of navigation that we, we try to relay and educate users on, that the key is not relying on the technology. The key is to rely on yourself as the operator and the planning that you put in uh, before each case, that is spending time with the CAT scan and mapping it out yourself and mapping out a plan as supported by the software, not in place of the software, but really having a plan, whether so you understand what you're gonna, going to do in case there's difficult navigation, software failure, equipment failure, bleeding, what have you, uh, you need to have a plan in place that does not rely entirely on the technology. That, that's, a, I think, a key point we need to drive home for, for new adopters. Yeah, and I, would, I, I agree with everything that Mo said. And, and I would add, in regard to the study, just taking it back to the study, you know, in, in a sense, this is, although it's an academic center, it is sort of a real-world study in the sense that not everybody that's performing procedures in this study is or was, you know, an expert navigational bronchoscopist, right? We've... We have a fair amount of endobronchial ultrasound experience, linear EBUS experience for mediastinal staging. Um, but, you know, there are a number of folks who performed um, many cases in the study, myself in particular, uh, who really didn't do a lot of electromagnetic navigation on the, on the legacy platforms before approaching um, the shape sensing robotic platform. So, you know, I, I do think it speaks to um, the fact that th this technology is um, amenable to dissemination and then it can be, you know, acquired even by those who don't have a lot of um, 
previous experience or exposure, but to Mo's point, you know, it, it is important to make sure that there is a significant, um, you know, training training period that happens. And for us, as he mentioned, that involved sort of a didactic uh, course um, through the supplier as well as, you know, proctored cases. And that's, a, that's really become our um, standard for training new users, which we've done several of over the past uh, year or so. And that is, you know, participation in the course and then, you know, a proctored period of, um, you know, 10 or 15 cases to make sure that, uh, you know, that, that folks are comfortable um, doing this. And, and, you know, as re- in regard to the learning curve, it, it clearly extends beyond that training period. I, mean, I can tell you from my own experience that my skills at, at case 50 were better than at case 10 and that case 100 are or 150 are, are definitely better than 50 or 100. So, um, you know, I'm not sure now, having been through this for a while, where the learning curve ends. I'm not sure it does end. Uh, but in terms of, you know, becoming a competent user, that, that's certainly, uh, I think, something that's achievable for, uh, for most. So I would add that. Chris, and then in terms of the number of cases that you're doing per week. Um, you mentioned that you've got nine uh, individuals performing the procedures. How many cases are you doing per week? Or how many cases are being done per person per week? And how many would you need to be doing per year to be competent? Uh, we're, right, so that, that's a great point in terms of competency. So I'd just like to add uh, to that question, as well as the last one we were talking about in terms of proctoring, just to highlight the point that when we first started, truly was a great collaboration between our two services where uh, at other institutions it may be seen as just pure competition. Uh, we, we supported each other as we were learning uh, where, you know, for example, you know, Matt would come to my cases and I would go to his cases and we'd sort of give each other insight and, and ideas or, or learn from each other in real time. So there's, there's value there. And then coming back to your current point about number of cases, uh, I, I think that's to be determined in terms of number of cases that you need to become competent. And going back to Matt's point, whether how we define competent, how we define the end of the learning curve is sort of an unknown right now. Uh, I, I would argue um, in support of a, a point Matt made earlier that uh, learning this particular technology was definitely on the easier side uh, relative to what it could have been in terms of the complexity of what's sort of hiding behind the console and be hiding behind the software. Um, so I don't know if we know what the right number of cases is from a learning standpoint, uh, but I'll echo Matt's point that uh, we, we continue to learn. We, we absolutely do. Once you think you're comfortable, you, you learn something new um, and we're evolving uh, as we speak. That, that's uh, in spite of um, several hundred cases performed across the nine of us. Uh, from a weekly standpoint, Matt, correct me if I'm wrong, we're probably ranging in the maybe 15 up to 20 range. Yeah, I think we have the capability of doing about 20 cases a week. We, we don't use all of that. We, I agree with Mo, probably around 15 or so. Um, and then a competency, like how many cases do you need on a, on a yearly basis to be competent? I don't think anybody knows. I don't think anybody knows that answer. 
but that's that's an important area for for investigation and and you know what is and standards for competency too right if we're going to train people and we're going to do quality control do we need a, a minimum yield in some of these cases and and if yield is so impacted by characteristics of the nodules you know how do you how do you normalize for that? So there, that, that's a very complicated question, I think, but obviously one that we're, we're interested in exploring further. Great. Well, I appreciate both of you taking um, this time to speak to our audience about this very important topic. I do want to give each of you the opportunity to leave us with uh, any concluding remarks or um, comments on how you think uh, this technology is going to impact uh, the, the care of patients with lung nodules, or if we haven't covered something in the podcast um, that you think our audience should definitely know about, uh, please go ahead and say it now. Um, I'll get uh, Mo to kick us off and then Matt to, to close it up. Mo? Sure, and thank you again for the opportunity for Matt and I to speak, uh, and hopefully this is a helpful conversation for the listening audience. Uh, I do believe we covered a a lot of the key points. Um, Maybe I'll just reiterate the the most important piece as it pertains to future. Um, Again, I think it's an opportunity to offer a low-risk, high-yield uh, procedure from a diagnostic standpoint for peripheral lung lesions. Again, being able to offer uh, this concurrently with mediastinal lymph node staging, um, which in turn then leads to having enough material for molecular analysis, assuming there is a cancer diagnosis. Moreover, multiple lung nodules or bilateral lung nodules uh, are all part and parcel of that single procedure. And uh, the future of therapeutics, whether it's via the robotic bronchoscopy platform or uh, because of and, and leading to a surgical resection, uh, I think is, is the future. Thank you, Mo. Matt? Yeah, I certainly agree. And, and um, you know, I would just make a follow-up point that I think collaborative aspects, um, you know, between surgeons and pulmonologists in this domain really does have advantages. Um, You know, we've been able to synergize our experience and leverage that both in a clinical sense and in a research sense uh, quite well. And, you know, I think there are some questions from surgeons a lot of the time about whether they should be involved in this type of technology. And I, I strongly encourage folks to think about it because I do think you know, it's it's going to be uh, growing in popularity. I think there are certainly advantages um, to patients, many of which we've uh, outlined during the course of the talk. And then, you know, as potential therapeutic um, modalities roll out that are associated with the technology, it's just very helpful, um, I think, to have experience and skills, you know, w- with each potential therapeutic option for, for a lung cancer, um, you know, and that really allows um, the provider to uh, select the, the modality that m- may be most appropriate uh, for an individual patient. So, um, yeah, I, th- I think that's the point that I wanted to add. Agree. We definitely want to improve the outcomes of our patients uh, with potential lung cancer and to make sure that we do it in the safest way possible. A very big thank you to Matt and Mo for a really uh, interesting conversation and a big thank you to our chess community for joining us. I'm Dominic Pepper and this is the Chess Podcast.